So that was the end of our discussion, Mr. Bracken. After a few more words, we dispersed. I hope you will join me in their cause, since they say that for teaching a man this brand of intelligence, their only requirement is, is money. Sounds interesting, Mr. Hempel. And I should like to go, were it not that I feel frankly unsympathetic to Lucas's approach. I am one of those who mention who prefer to lose an argument his way rather than win it. It may seem absurd for me to give you advice here, but I think you would better hear what I heard yesterday from a legal friend of mine, a man of considerable intellect, who left your discussion in the middle and met me walking on Nassau Street. He asked me why I was not attending the meeting. I inquired what meeting, and he told me there was a long discussion in progress in the student center. Tell me what I am missing, I asked. You are missing a chance, he said, to hear the top philosophers of our generation showing their pieces. I asked him what he thought of them. I thought the whole performance was utter nonsense, he said. They were making a lot of fuss about nothing. Those were his very words. But surely, I said, philosophy is a very agreeable study. Agreeable? It is worthless. It surprised me very much. He went on to see Mr. Hempel there. He should know better than to expose himself to such pointless wrangling. And yet these men, he repeated, are reckoned among the most promising philosophers of their generation. The fact is, Pratt, that the subject itself is trivial, and those who engage in it, grotesque. My own view was that his disparagement of philosophy, or any disparagement for that matter, was unjust. But when he expressed disapproval of your engaging in public argument with such people, then I had to agree. They are remarkable men, Mr. Pratt. But what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Tell me about this man who disapproves of philosophy. Is he a practicing lawyer or a professor? Oh, a professor. I doubt whether he has ever been inside a law court. But they say he knows his subject and writes well. As I thought, he is one of the very class I was about to mention. You remember that William James said of law professors that they sit on the knife edge between scholarship and politics. The trouble is that they take pride in this. They think they are the sword of the earth intellectually, and many people seem to agree with them. But on the whole, philosophers have an even higher reputation. So the law professor reasons that if only he can prove philosophy worthless, no one will be left to dispute his title to intellectual supremacy, which he considers by rights, he is by rights anyway, and in spite of a tendency to be worsted in most verbal encounters with philosophers of Lucas's caliber. This self-esteem is natural since lawyers have a certain amount of philosophical skill and a certain familiarity with practical politics. And they argue reasonably enough that their acquaintance with each subject is just sufficient to keep them out of the pitfalls of sophistry and the dangers of political feud, while allowing them the free use of the intellectual powers. And do you think there's anything in this? Nothing. Yet their argument has a certain plausibility. Plausible is the word. But the fact is that they do not appreciate the danger of falling between two stools. If you combine two activities, of which one is worthwhile and the other not, then your resultant activity is better than the second, but worse than the first. If the two activities are both worthwhile, but not complementary, then the combination is less effective than either in achieving the ends at which they severally aim. 
only in the case of two worthless activities is their combination less worthless. So, if philosophy and politics are both worthwhile activities, but not complementary, it is not sex to say that combination is more worthwhile, it is less. There could only be truth in what these lawyers claim if both the combined subjects were valueless, which I do not imagine they could want to admit. The truth is that lawyers who combine the practice of philosophy and politics are generally, and contrary to their own opinion, lesser men than both the philosophers and the politicians they emulate. However, I do not wish to stir up animosity. We may forgive them their aspiration, provided that we have no illusions about their achievement. After all, any man who professes an intellectual occupation and engages resolutely in it deserves our greatest respect. I think I have mentioned to you before how worried I am about future plans for my daughters. The younger one is still small, but Jane will soon be ready for college. I often think when I hear you talking that the sort of anxieties we have over our children verge on the lunatic. We make colossal efforts to choose a well-educated girl for their mother and to ensure their future against bad times and accidents to ourselves. But when it comes to education, we take no trouble at all. But then when I look at the people who set themselves up as educators, I am horrified what a queer lot they seem to be. You know, I am not sure I can advise the girl to go to college at all. But, my dear Pratt, it's true of every profession that the great majority of its adherents are unsatisfactory in some way or even worthless. Surely you appreciate that a good man is always a precious rarity. Look at business or the law or the services or sport. These are all perfectly respectable professions, aren't they? Surely. And they all contain a large proportion of bunglers. That is perfectly true. But you are not going to forbid your daughter to have anything to do with them. I couldn't sensibly. No. But what you can do is this. Simply ignore the professors of philosophy, good and bad. Examine instead the profession. If you conclude that it is all a waste of time, don't recommend it. Certainly not to your children. But if you find it as I do, then I hope that you and your whole family will become zealous and conscientious students.